and welcome to the Common Good Podcast, the podcast that showcases the very best of Glasgow Caledonian University and how the institution, its staff and its research benefits people and communities, both at home and overseas. My name is Craig Telfer and today I am delighted to be joined by Dr Val Ness, a senior lecturer in nursing and community health, to talk about her research project that has found nurses feel under pressure from patients to prescribe antibiotics. Val, it's great to see you. Thank you very much for speaking to me. No problem at all. Great to be here. Now let's start by looking at your research. Can you outline exactly what the study was about? Yeah, so it was about looking at antibiotic prescribing behaviour of nurse prescribers in Scotland and specifically looking at them when they had a patient who would present for the first time with an upper respiratory tract infection. And so we were wanting to know in that situation whether they would prescribe an antibiotic or whether they would manage the patient without prescribing an antibiotic. And then we also wanted to look at what the influences were on that prescribing behaviour or non-prescribing behaviour. And what did you find when you completed the project? So we had really interesting findings. We first of all found that they did intend to not prescribe an antibiotic. Um, so that was really great, great news that that was the kind of um, the main finding. However, the other interesting finding, as you alluded to earlier, was that they did feel under pressure from patients and from their carers or family members to prescribe an antibiotic um, in these situations. And that sometimes that then had an influence and made them perhaps change their behaviour. So that was also an interesting finding. There's so many interesting things that we can talk about this project, Val. So we'll go into all the various different elements and, and ask you about them. But the first thing I want to, to talk about is antibiotics. And the overuse of antibiotics has been described as a global crisis. And that seems like a really strong term. Is that the case? Yeah, yeah, sadly it is. Um, so it's the World Health Organization that really have said that antibiotic resistance um, is one of the biggest threats to global health. And it's rising to dangerously high levels in all parts of the world. And this really threatens our ability to treat common infectious diseases. So things like pneumonia, um, tuberculosis, sepsis, some um, foodborne diseases, gonorrhea, these types of things are all now really difficult to manage. And it leads then to higher medical costs, to longer hospital stays, and ultimately to, to more deaths. So yeah, without urgent action, we're, we're kind of heading to that era that we had pre-antibiotic, the sort of what they call the post-antibiotic era, where things that are sort of simple cuts or injuries um, or infections may again kill the same as they did beforehand. So yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely a, a global threat. Yeah, that sounds very scary. Why are antibiotics becoming less effective over time? So we use antibiotics to treat infections that are caused by bacteria and bacteria are really clever. So they naturally become resistant to antibiotics over a period of time. And so they develop the ability to defeat the drugs that were designed to kill them. And so the bacteria, they, they mutate, so they change or they can get genetic information from other bacteria. Um, and this makes them then resistant to those antibiotic drugs. You might have heard of superbugs. So yeah. These are strains of bacteria that have developed this resistance to many different types of antibiotics. And so the, those antibiotics are no longer effective against them. Um, and that means then that the bacteria are not killed and so continue to grow. How difficult is it to manufacture new kinds of antibiotics? Yeah, so that is difficult. And also, you know, once you, once you design or develop an antibiotic, they often they know because of past history that this will perhaps only work for a short period of time. So there's not a lot of money for, for pharmaceutical companies um, to get from creating these new antibiotics. And they do take a, a lot of development as well. So that, and people aren't often on antibiotics for a long period of time. So again, they're not getting that kind of money back. So 
Um, I'm not blaming the pharmaceutical companies <laughs> for this. It's just that they need funding as well in order to develop these, these new antibiotics. So to tie this into the study that you conducted, what happens when a person is prescribed antibiotics that they don't necessarily need? So like any drug, we don't really want to give someone a drug that they don't need because although antibiotics are generally very safe, they do still have some side effects and there are people who have allergies and have adverse reactions to them like penicillin allergies. But also there's evidence that people who are treated with antibiotics still have resistant bacteria in their body, um, sometimes for up to a year. And so that can mean it's difficult then to, to treat them. But the, the main key issue is, is that of resistance. And I think one reason that patients kind of underestimate it um, is because they think that the antibiotic resistance occurs in the individual, whereas actually what's happening is it occurs in the bacteria. And these bacteria are clever and so can spread from person to person. So it's a bit kind of, I suppose, like that sort of secondhand smoking type um, public health message. And obviously infections are much harder to treat if you have a resistant antibiotic or a superbug. And so that, that's really why there's a, there's a big issue with, with this overprescribing. That's very interesting, Val, and that's excellent. That really sets the scene and tells us what the issues surrounding antibiotics are. But let's look at the patients who the nurses were working with that took part in this study. It was patients with upper respiratory tract infections. What are upper respiratory tract infections? So there are things like um, the common cold, sneezes, coughs, runny noses, all those types of, of things are classed as upper respiratory tract infections. Does that tie in with coronavirus or COVID-19 at all? Yeah, so this is where it's obviously become a bit more complicated. Um, and I think the important thing is that people need to follow the, the government guidance for, for COVID-19 and any of those types of symptoms, they, they should get tested and follow the sort of self-isolation guidance until that. Um, but yes, they would be classed in again, it's a virus and most of these upper respiratory tract infections are viral infections. Yeah. Why do you choose then to focus on this group of patients? Firstly, because they're viral and so therefore antibiotics don't work on viruses. And secondly, most upper respiratory tract infections, provided that you have a healthy immune system, they're self-limiting. So people can manage them themselves. They don't need any antibiotics in order to, to clear them up. And yet they still are a condition that lots of antibiotics are prescribed for. So they, they've kind of been pointed out as one of the sort of groups of, of conditions where there is inappropriate prescribing. Also, they're often managed in the community, and that is where a lot of nurse prescribers work. Um, and obviously that was the, the other group that I wanted to look at. And so that was why really these were the, the key conditions to look at. We'll talk about the nurse prescribers in just a second there, Val, but why are viruses being treated with antibiotics if we know it's not really an effective way to deal with them? Some of them can, can be similar to bacterial infections. So for example, um, sinus infections can be bacterial or they can be viral. They can sometimes spread. So from an upper respiratory tract infection, you can get a, a lower respiratory tract infection and they can sometimes be bacterial. So there is sometimes a, a, a difficulty in, in diagnosing these infections, but generally, we're not sure why people get <laughs> antibiotics for viral infections. Um, and that was really, again, part of, of, this, of the reason for this study. And it may well be that it's because of things like patient pressure that, that patients feel that an antibiotic or any kind of medicine um, will make them feel better or, or they'll get over these yeah. often quite horrible symptoms quicker. You surveyed 184 nurse independent practitioners or NIPs for this project. What is an NIP? 
So these are registered nurses who have then gone on and done an extra qualification to become um, an independent prescriber. Um, they're sometimes called non-medical prescribers, so it's not just nurses that can do this prescribing, doctors, physiotherapists, these types of people as well. And so they are able to prescribe any medicine, provided it's in their capability and their sort of subscription to do so. And how was the survey carried out with them? So I did interviews, first of all, with, 20, I did 27 telephone, one-to-one telephone interviews, um, really just to sort of find out what their beliefs are and let them talk about their prescribing behaviour. And then I analysed this data and then I used the results to develop a questionnaire. And then, and I used a, a, a behavioural model to help with that. And then the questionnaire was tested and piloted, and then it was sent out to all nurse independent prescribers in Scotland through, through gatekeepers that we, we used and, and sent via, via email to them. Um, and we specifically asked for those who were currently managing patients who would present with an upper respiratory tract infection. And then we analysed this data to try and predict um, their intention to manage patients without prescribing an antibiotic and to understand the importance of the influences on this behaviour and then finally to assess the influence of each of them so that really we could think about designing some kind of intervention to change behaviour where it was needed. Of course, because the research found that two-thirds of NIPs felt under pressure to prescribe these antibiotics. Was this something that surprised you? So not really. The, the, there hadn't been an awful lot of evidence done on nurse prescribers, but the evidence around medical prescribing um, did bring up the fact that they also had this sort of perception that they, there was pressure from patients to prescribe. And there had been some other studies looking at nurse prescribing, which had, had also found that, that this pressure was, it was there for nurse prescribers too. Did he describe the pressure? In the interviews, um, after the, the survey found this, I went back and, and re-looked at all the interviews that I'd carried out. And yeah, they, they described it in a few ways. So they, they said that they found that this pressure was either from patients or they also spoke about sometimes from family members, and particularly if it was children to parents, and that they said that it was influenced by a, sort of a few different factors. So some of them mentioned that the patients believed that these antibiotics would make them better or that they had been given an antibiotic in the past for something similar and so couldn't understand, well, why wouldn't they be given an antibiotic again? And also a few of them mentioned the fact that they had, they had sort of questioned why it was a nurse that, was, that they were seeing that was prescribing this and, and not a doctor. So I think there's still a bit of that if it's the first time that a patient has been, has been treated by a nurse prescriber too. Well, then how can NIPs better manage patient expectations going forward? There was lots of discussion in the interviews, um, although in the interviews they all said that they felt this pressure. Again, they said that they had strategies that they used to manage these, these patients. So things like giving, providing them with an information and education about what an antibiotic is and about antibiotic resistance, giving them information about how to manage their symptoms, using um, you know, sort of over-the-counter medications and these types of things. And then they also talked sometimes about safety netting. So that would be instead of prescribing an antibiotic, they might say, if your symptoms worsen or don't improve, please come back and see us in so many days. Or delayed prescribing, which is where you can give a patient a prescription, but say, don't cash this in or, mm -hmm. or collect it or take it unless your symptoms worsen. So they use these types of, of or monitoring of, of patients if they, they knew them well and had long-term conditions. So they use a variety of strategies to manage them that involve them not having to prescribe an antibiotic. 
You touched on it there, Val, but do you think the public need to be better educated about the consequences of the overuse of antibiotics? Yeah, I, th I think they, there needs to be more education out there. There is awareness raising from um, Public Health Scotland and Public Health England, World Health Organisation, etc. There is Antibiotic Awareness Week that runs every year in November. So there is a lot of public awareness. But yeah, I, th I think they need to know the differences between viral and bacterial infections alongside the belief that you know, antibiotics, although they're a low-risk medication, are a kind of driver of this unnecessary antibiotic resistance. And yeah, so I think that message still needs to be, still needs to get out there more. I think that we've probably got a long way to go in terms of that. I think in my own experiences going to the GP, when you want to be prescribed with an antibiotic and you're not given it, there is a degree of frustration there. You think perhaps, well, I'm going to take this and I'm going to have to come back for, further down the line. How do we get away? How do we change that culture? Yeah, so I mean, I think a lot of it is to do with good communication and, and sometimes that takes time. And so, you know, often there's not a lot of time in consultations with GPs or with um, with nurse um, practitioners. So I think it's important that, that, that they are given that time to spend with the patient and to really understand why the patient believes that an antibiotic will work. Um, and also to, to acknowledge that and to provide a diagnosis and also to say, yes, these, these symptoms are unpleasant and what is, what is your worst symptom and try and offer then um, ways that they can manage those symptoms. So I think there's, there's lots that they can do to make sure that patients really feel that they're listened because there is some evidence that suggests that although prescribers feel as if patients are coming, pressurising them, that patients aren't. And it's just that it's a perception from the prescriber, whereas what the patient really wants is just an answer, um, a diagnosis and some advice. So I, I think it is, it's, a, it's about that sort of therapeutic relationship that, that practitioners have with their patients um, and just spending time and making sure that they're listening to them, that they're reassuring them and that they are providing support if, if they then need it, if they do need to come back. Did the research project uncover anything else? Um, so those were the main findings, but they also found that there were, so the, the sort of patient pressure was seen as a kind of barrier to, to this behaviour, but there were facilitators as well. So um, nurse prescribers said that they, they wanted to manage patients without prescribing an antibiotic because they felt that that's how other nurse prescribers behaved. So there was this kind of almost sort of social peer pressure from other prescribers that this was the best way to act. Um, and then they also felt that the, their own experience and confidence was really important and, and that also allowed them then to, to manage patients and offer these strategies without prescribing an antibiotic. So those were the other kind of two main influences. How do we put this research into a practical context? So I think, as you've mentioned before, there needs to be more of that sort of public awareness with these campaigns. Um, there's the Keep Antibiotics Working campaign and the public messages really should be about advising the public to visit NHS help pages, first of all, which I think people are perhaps doing more so now because of, of COVID, mm -hmm. before booking an appointment, going to see local pharmacists, following advice that's online, and, and then if they do need a consultation, really trusting their healthcare professional that they're going to make the right decision about their treatment. As far as for the nursing implications of it, I think there's interventions that we can now develop based on the findings of the study so perhaps an intervention that highlights to uh, nurse prescribers that patients might present expecting an antibiotic um, and to acknowledge the pressure that this puts them under but then to offer guidance about these strategies that they can use to prevent this prescribing 
also we can use the influence of, of the sort of peer support that the prescribers spoke about and um, positive role modeling and support and education from their peers and also looking at the, the confidence and experience that they had to get, have again, providing sort of feedback to, to prescribers about how their prescribing practice and these types of things will hopefully promote that confidence in them. And so then they'll, they'll prescribe better too. So, so I think those are the kind of key things that, that we would want to take from the findings. Yeah, definitely. All very important recommendations, Val. But let's talk a little bit about yourself and about, about your background. You worked as an A&E nurse before moving into academia. Could you tell us about some of your experiences there and, and tell us why you chose to change career? Yeah, so yeah, I worked in um, a busy city centre emergency department as a nurse and then lastly as an as emergency nurse practitioner as well. And it was a it was a great place to work. I certainly learned lots and lots there, and and developed skills and things like prioritising and dealing with challenging situations and teamwork, multitasking, and communication skills. And and I think these are amazing transferable skills yeah. into education and research as well. And I was lucky enough when I was there to to be involved in teaching and also to be involved in in research studies. And so I think that led me to then thinking about a a, a job at GCU. Um, and since I've been here, I've never looked back. <laughs> so you don't, you don't miss uh, your time in the wards then? Um, sometimes, yeah, sometimes. I think we all do. But because because I still teach predominantly in pre-registration nursing, then, you know, I think seeing the students and seeing how they experience out in practice um, is really good. And, and we often, you know, hear their stories and, and sort of live it through them. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You also play a big role in GCU's SHIP team. That's the Safeguarding Health Through Infection Prevention. And we had Professor Leslie Price in this podcast back at the start of the year talking about some of the work that the SHIP team does. But Val, could you remind us about the projects that you, you take part in and work on? Yeah, so the, the SHIP team is a, a great research team that's led by, as you say, Professor Leslie Price and, and Professor Jackie Riley. And I really enjoy being part of that team because it's got a really strong relationship between research and also its application um, in practice, so it links really well with, with my previous roles and my current role. It's a, a multidisciplinary team, which is really good as well. So there's um, nurses, microbiologists, health psychologists, and, and again, that makes the work really interesting. And the research really focuses on, um, as the title suggests, safeguarding against infection and enhancing the, the quality of patient care. There's kind of five main strands, um, antibiotic resistance um, and stewardship, which means kind of looking after antibiotics in the future is one strand. And that's obviously where a lot of my work ties in. But they also look at the microbiology of healthcare uh, associated infections, patient and staff experience, and the sort of cost and epidemiology, you know, the sort of pattern of, of, of these infections. So yeah, they do they do lots of lots of really good work. Do you have any projects on the horizon? Yeah, so I mean, following on from, from my PhD, I've been working with a, an international group of experts and we've been trying to develop antimicrobial um, or antibiotic competencies for, for students across healthcare, just to tell them about the importance of antibiotic resistance. And I'm currently supervising a, a doctoral student, PhD student, who's exploring interventions again to try and enhance uh, antibiotic stewardship in acute hospitals. And I've got another student who's starting this year, and she's going to be looking at some of the infection prevention control lessons that we can learn from COVID-19 um, in relation to nursing practice. So that will be that will be really interesting as well. The team itself, obviously, there's the SIREN study that. Professor Price's podcast was, was about, which looks into the COVID-19 and reinfection. And then the team are also working up ideas for projects 
um, related to improving the design of new hospitals to prevent control and spread of infection, improving healthcare staff's experience of using personal protective equipment that we've heard so much about recently, and also a review of the evidence for infection prevention and control practices for the World Health Organization, which is obviously a, a, an excellent organization to work with and be linked to. That's certainly plenty to keep you busy, Val. Thank you very much for taking time out of your schedule to, to chat with us. Really important research, and it was great to learn more about it. Thank you very much. No problem at all. Thank you. I'd also like to thank everyone for tuning into this podcast, and I hope you'll join us again soon when you can hear more about the great work that is going on at Glasgow Caledonian University. In the meantime, make sure you subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. You'll find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and whatever platform you're listening to us on right now. Until next time, I've been Craig Telfer and this has been the Common Good Podcast. Mm-hmm.